Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Catch and Shoot podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Catch and Shoot goes well with both red and white and is perfect with a workout of your choice. Our co-hosts are on both coasts and they have all of NBA Nation covered. Adam Stanko in the Bay Area and Noah Kozlov in the Big Apple. Somehow the, the Cabo Bureau got shut down, but Adam got out quickly <laughs> enough, which is good. Just good. And, he, and he's back eight pounds heavier, all you can eat. And that's what he did all day. Got a lot of sun too. More than eight. But it's good. Yeah, but it's but it's good to have him back. We're gonna have Tom McGinnis, the longtime radio voice of the Philadelphia 76ers, join us shortly. But also on Pure Hoops Media and all the podcasts, you can hear the Mike Wise show. You can hear Buckets, Boards, and Blocks. That's the newest one with Monica McNutt. She led off with Lisa Byington, who I actually called a Division Two women's game in somewhere in northern Michigan with her a handful of years ago. And now look at where she is and. Yeah, I mean, I guess I've surpassed her since I'm doing this podcast with Adam Stanko. And then also you can hear the Pure Hoop show with BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman. But real quick, a follow-up on my off-the-rails from last week about that woman who yelled at my daughter. Oh, we the saw lunatic, her, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we saw her in the elevator the other day. We were getting on the elevator. She was getting – no, we were getting off the elevator. She was getting on the elevator. And as we walked by – I didn't say a word – and as we walked by, Marissa said, Ugh, like that. And and then Eden says, as we get off, Mom, why why did you why did you do that? And and, Mom, and Marissa said, Well, what? She said, Well, when we got off the elevator, you went. <laughs> and so Marissa said, Well, that's the woman that 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 was rude to you, and uh, and I, I probably should have done that, but. But I did, and 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 Eden said, "Yeah, mom, that that was that was rude. You shouldn't have done that." <laughs> I was hoping you were going to tell me that uh, Eden was no. uh, drawing with chalk on the elevator, and it just yeah, so right. happened that. Right. Or she happened to have a, or she happened to have a sharpie on her, and she <laughs> and she drew on the woman's shirt. That would have been that would have been better. I should start telling her to walk around with a paintbrush and see what happens. So how's uh, how has reentry been from vacation? I'm dragging. But my family is is dragging even more. My my little man, the two-year-old son, is almost impossible to motivate at this point. I don't know whether he was spoiled in Mexico or all the travel or what. Um, this morning he told me that he just wanted one goldfish, even though we Whoa. were eating breakfast. He's like, I just want one. I just want one. I said, just one? He said, yeah. So I gave him one, and uh, we had a meltdown shortly thereafter when he wanted a second. And... And he followed up, I just want one, after I gave him one with, I just want five. I go, okay. I think those are the only two numbers he knows. But uh, kid's learning, Noah. He's learning. Yeah. All right, so Tom McGinnis in a moment. 
But first, explain this to me. Guys, explain this to me. Actually, I should go with Adam. Explain this to me. How is it considered parenting if you're giving your kid goldfish at breakfast? But I'm not. I'm going to go with <laughs> explain this to me. Given what happened, as we recorded this on Tuesday, given what happened in the Warriors-Clippers game on Monday, the 31-point comeback, the largest comeback in playoff history, I went to sleep when they were up by 30, 19 and a half minutes to go in the game. No boogie cousins anymore. Explain this to me, that the league should be, every other team in the league should be optimistic now about winning a title. Uh, I I mean, Noah, we've talked all year about it seems inevitable that the Warriors are going to win it regardless of what else happens. But, I mean, the fact that this Clippers team was the team that came back against them uh, just says something about how this Warriors team is not built like the other teams were. Um, 41 to 23 is what the Clippers outscored the Warriors in the fourth quarter. And you look at who they're doing it with. I mean, Lou Williams every year is better than we always think, right? I mean, he's sweet Lou is, is unbelievable, and he hit some incredible shots that you missed while you were, you were sleeping. Yeah. But, you know, the toughness of Patrick Beverly, Lou Williams, the fact that they're doing this, uh, Landry Shamit uh, hits a monster three. Um, uh, Gilgis Alexander and Shamit are starting for this team, so you're starting two rookies in a playoff game. Montrez Harrell. Like, it's not like this is a team led by superstars uh, that made this comeback in Oracle. And by the way, the last uh, run for Oracle for, for the Warriors. So there's so much behind it. I think it all comes down to, and we haven't even mentioned Boogie Cousins. I'll let you weigh in on that. But I think it all comes down to this idea that it's just so difficult to win three titles in a row, that fatigue sets in, egos set in, and the six, uh, the uh, Warriors have sort of played this level of, they've been disinterested this year. And uh, I think that's significant. And, and I think that's certainly reason for optimism for everybody else. I think it's, I think what's significant, Adam, is the, that you always look for, for some sort of blueprint or a few ingredients in order to beat the Warriors. And, and I think what the Clippers showed us and showed other teams was, all right, you know what? Let them get, let them keep getting to the foul line. They got to the foul line. I think it was 45 times. I don't have the box score in front of me. Probably should, but there were 64 fouls total in the game and there were 41 turnovers. So if you can, you've got to see, it it was like what the Cavs did a number of years ago to the Warriors in the finals that you see what you can get away with. So you try to clutch and grab, especially when Steph and Clay are coming around screens. You get them frustrated, and they did it with KD, and KD had four offensive fouls in the second half. So 41 turnovers, 64 personal fouls. Yeah, it was, they were 40, on 40, 40 for 45 from, from the free throw line. So slow the game down that way, and that could be something. I, I, they're not going to lose to the Clippers, and I still think the Warriors are going to win the title, but I, I would maybe start considering leaning towards the field if mm-hmm. that if that bet's available. But what they did to KD and Patrick Beverly getting into KD's head. But on the boogie side of things, before we move on, that I don't think it's crazy significant, but I think it could be against the Rockets because, like, Andrew Bogut can't play against the Rockets. Mm-hmm. So you're going to need... You're going to need all the, the Looney and Bell minutes to be good. Or you're going to have to have Iguodala always available. And you're going to have to keep Draymond on the floor. So I think that's I think that's when it could be significant against the Rockets specifically. 
Yeah, I think losing Boogie Cousins in a weird way could actually be beneficial to the Warriors um, in in some ways. I mean, they don't have as much star power, but of course this, I mean, with Durant and and Curry, almost nothing else matters. I mean, you can have off nights from Klay Thompson shooting, uh, which you did in game one, and it still isn't isn't going to be significant because those guys can just carry you for stretches. So offensively, I, I think they're fine. I think that I, I would be super worried about the fact that they gave up that many points and let Lou Williams sort of have his way, and I agree with you. I think the toughness is a major issue and has been all year. This is the same team that has not been able to just turn it on like they, they have. And I guess the bigger thing is they've sort of let their foot off the gas. So, Guys, explain this to me. Noah, explain this to me. The Sixers win in game two in impressive fashion, and they can win this way every single night. So 51 points in the third quarter, they're not going to be able to do that every night. But I do think the Ben Simmons A-plus defense and attacking offensively can happen. There's no reason for Ben Simmons not to play the way he did last night on on Monday night as we record this on Tuesday so against the Nets I think this can happen and you saw that just some personnel changes out there not having TJ McConnell out there as much and even even JJ Redick but you had you had Ennis out there more Mike Scott out there more you had other players that were better defensively so that the Nets just couldn't attack offensively and then Joel Embiid so the Nets are, are daring Simmons and Embiid to shoot fine you know Simmons isn't going to do it, and then they end up packing the paint. But Joel Embiid, they, they laid off, and they just kept taking dribbles in until he got into the post-up. So they can continue to win that way if they stick to this. And Brett Brown going nuts at halftime. Those have been the reports. Just went ballistic on the team at halftime, cursing and screaming, and it was imploring the defense, and he got the most out of them. And two other things, Noah. Jimmy Butler scores seven points in the game, not even a headline, uh, because he's fine as long as they win, right? I, I would assume that, that that something screams that's okay. They're mm-hmm. happy as long as they can produce. And, and he was deferring and he was passing, and he's even scarier when he gets into that mode. And, and you mentioned something that I think is significant, the idea of Ben Simmons. Went, I think one thing he took advantage of is you said it, defenses are already backing up. They already play him beneath the foul line. They already allow him to shoot. He's not taking that shot. But it also means, and what he took advantage of, was having a downhill route to the basket. So now he's got two steps on you because you're letting him sort of attack the basket um, unfiltered, if you will, and he, and he gets there in the paint, and then he can score or distribute. And uh, it was pretty fun to see that from him last night, see that bounce back game. All right, explain this to me. No Marcus Smart is a good thing for the Celtics. I mean, it would seem that's insane, right? And our, our uh, one of our producers, Bruce Bernstein, uh, I know is a huge Marcus Smart fan, and for good reason. The guy's incredible defensively and sets the tone for that team. But the Celtics, I feel like, haven't had an issue to rally around all season long. Like, that's what I think has been the missing piece. There's just been no chemistry. The Kyrie Irving thing has been just hanging over their heads and Anthony Davis and all this this other nonsense and noise. I think without Marcus Smart, we saw a different defensive intensity from Kyrie Irving and from the rest of the guys, Jalen Brown and company. You see all the metrics about how good this team plays when Kyrie doesn't play. I think the younger guys like the opportunity to have the chance to step up, get more shots, get more minutes, 
and have uh, something sort of to play for, a common cause. You agree with me on this? I think maybe in in this series, but you can't have Kyrie playing max effort level defense and expect the same thing from him offensively if they're to get through the East. Okay. Uh, no, explain this to me. These quotes that you found from Michael Jordan's third season uh, when he scored 3,000 points in a season, become the second player uh, after Wilt to do that in a single season. It was only his second full season would be mm-hmm. a much bigger deal uh, today. Uh, first, his coach said, I know I'll get some argument from people about Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, but Michael Jordan night in and night out scores, rebounds, plays defense, and runs the floor. I'm not saying those guys don't, but Michael has such great athletic ability that he is beating double and triple teams and still gets layups. And Mike Fratello from the same game story that came out to, on this date in uh, 1987 uh, said, Michael is one of the greatest to ever play the game. And he had only played two full seasons at that point. <laughs> right, no. right. So he'd only, he'd only played two full seasons. So I guess the explain this to me is, so today this would be leading every single show and we'd probably get a week of content out of it. So this is coming off his 61-point game against the Hawks in game 81 of that season. Then they went on and, and got swept in the first round of the playoffs in, in three games. I think it was the Boston. So today it would be, well, what does this guy want? He hasn't done, he hasn't done anything. He's, he's, he's scoring great, but you know, so is Devin Booker. And you know, he's playing great defense, but can he stay healthy? He's just, you know, he just broke his foot a year before, so there could be injury concerns. And then now look at Michael Jordan. And I know that you know, sports talk radio and, and TV shows, the, the debate wasn't, this wasn't the uh, leading content driver or that this isn't how stations were programmed at the time. But I, I was trying to think about who you would say that about now, even like Joel Embiid, those were, those were conversations about Embiid when he'd only played 31 games. Like, oh, he could be one of the best ever, but you know, I'll pump the brakes on the Hakeem comparisons. <laughs> And the, you know, Zion Williamson, I think it was Colin Coward who said he's already a top 20 player in the league. So these days, this would be a major headline. But I like to find these this day in history and go back and find the newspaper articles so we can try to get some sort of sense on reaction to this type of thing. And, get, and And have some sort of context, not just, oh, he scored 61. Yeah, you, you think about the idea of being a prisoner of the moment as a modern phenomenon and I think you just disproved that point entirely by finding this uh, article from 32 years ago. That was dope. I know this might make them feel old, and, and that is the very last thing I want to do, but it's a voice from my childhood. We're joined now by Philadelphia 76ers radio announcer in his 24th year. He's Tom McGinnis. Tom, how often do people see you on the street even from across the way, and just say, are you kidding me? Right. It's Philly, so they usually yell, yo, are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah, that's become the signature line, I guess, over the years. Does, does it happen often? It does. And uh, you'll remember another person from your childhood from sports, the late Gary Papa, who was on our, the popular TV station here, uh, Channel 6, WPBI, used to say, all the way back when we were, in L.A. in the NBA Finals, he said, you should trademark that. And uh, I said, you know, I'm sure. I'm like, 
a Midwesterner, like, no, no, like that, that's my first thought, my go-to. That was his, you know, proposition. I said, everybody says that and everybody does say it. And now it's certainly commonplace in sports. So I guess they could have made a few shekels along the way. <laughs> How do you, so we're coming off, we, we just had game two of this series. We're recording this on, on Tuesday late morning, just had game two in Philly on Monday night, a 51-point third quarter. How do you take care of your voice? Well, I, you know, like, and not to be overly dramatic, but one thing I think as an announcer, certainly one that, uh, you know, gets involved and pushes it a little bit during the course of a given broadcast, it's almost like an instrument. You know when to play it uh, low and you need, you know, like sometimes you can't really go off knowing that this is a close game. You need it for five more minutes of game action. So I really, you know, I, I know you're not supposed to drink coffee. There's probably a bunch of things that you're not supposed to do that I do all the time. So I just, um, you know, I'm just a little careful not to scream too much during the course of the game. And I I, bro- I blow through that too. But I, I really, I hate to say it, knock wood, don't. You know what I mean? Like, uh, but you are, you are careful. And I certainly don't talk like that during the course of the day. So I guess maybe you have it in reserve mode. But uh, you can't be in fifth gear the whole time, I guess is my point. Tom, I'm always fascinated by all this sort of in the weeds stuff. Noah, another play-by-play guy, and and obviously, um, uh, your your career has been has been just wonderful. I'm curious when you're calling games, who are you specifically thinking about, and and who are you talking to? Yeah, good point. Really good question, and I I don't. Um... You know, like my wife was in television for a long time. I started in television that early in my career. And so there was kind of a trick in the lens to to look into the camera and think you were speaking to one person. I don't necessarily do that, like, but I also feel so comfortable on the radio because I've done it for so long and have called so many games that, like, there's very few, um, like, there's no entrapment in radio. You're just talking. In fact, I'll harken back to the TV. Like I was a journalism student. And one of the things that you learn is that you write what you see, you say it and you, you know, you write to it so that the pictures match the words. I'm really just watching the game and describing what I see, but I'm so comfortable doing it that it comes across that I'm speaking directly to you, that I'm talking to one person and that, you know, like it almost feels like, that's what it is. It's like uh, an intimate deal where it's just a one-on-one deal when obviously, hopefully, a lot of people are listening. Uh, but I think maybe what you are cognizant of is how to simplify it and break it down because you know people aren't just strictly sitting there listening to the radio. They might be going to Wawa or doing a million different things during the course of listening to a game. So I'm not thinking of one specific thing, but I am thinking of trying to communicate and and that too goes back to that thing about the voice where you're using your voice to kind of capture people and be entertaining and exciting when you're matching the moment. But on the other times when you're reading things that you're supposed to get in there or you're just going over statistical deals, you have a different tone and a different delivery. How does your tone and, and delivery change when the team is awful and the team is really good? Those first few years you had, the team was brutal, and then, of course, during the first few process years, it's the same way. Right. So my first year was 1995. We won 18 games. 
which, you know, three or four years ago, that sounded pretty good. <laughs> but the one thing about calling the games is that the action still, whether, you know, you're getting beat by 20. Now, obviously, there's a different tone involved there. And um, but you're still a reporter. And that, again, that goes kind of back to the journalism thing. You're still trying to get in the who, what, and where and, and be accurate in describing what you're talking about. And um, the the one thing I think when you're when you're getting hammered and you get you get beat a lot is you back off a little bit. You can't be screaming about a dunk that one of your players was able to pull off when you're down 20. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, but you still had to describe the game, even in in the blowouts. Like even when you were getting beat, the one that's kind of a little bit of a saving grace with the radio, you still have to call the game, even though it's a, a lopsided margin and you know, the game is all but decided. You still have to describe what's going on because that's the, that's the craft. That's what you do on radio. Um, but I always loved it. You know, I mean, the passion never went away. It was just there were times when, and it wasn't our players' fault. They just weren't at the level uh, commensurate with the, the talent they were up against. You know what I mean? They just, they weren't, the whole roster wasn't good enough to compete at, at the highest level, whereas now we're in a position to do so. Um, but the, the game, my preparation, all of those things didn't change. It's still so special. It was kind of a lifelong dream to be in this position to call NBA games, and I never lost that. It's always been special to me. Tom, being around the the team, I, I know you have two two children, um, and they've had experiences being around the team. For them, what was what was the coolest uh, experience they had in terms of a player they met or or something they were able to do because of the access you have? Oh, that's great. Um, sounds like you're reading uh, into my background a little bit. Cause, uh, <laughs> you know, we're away so much. Um, I, I think this year, I think we were gone 86 days. And that includes, like, so let's say we play on a Tuesday and we leave Monday. You know, me doing this, sitting in the hotel last week in Miami just because it seemed like we were, at the very end, we were gone 19 of the last 25 calendar days. So my point is if we <clears> game Tuesday and we leave Monday, I count Monday, even though we were home for more than half the day, but our kids are in school during that time. So to your point, like I do try to involve my kids. Like we're all going to New York City in a couple of days and, and, and they're on break. But part of it is because I'm away so much and they're fans, they go to school with kids that root for the team and whatnot. And so oftentimes I bring my son to the game. He was with me last night. He was with me Saturday. My daughter will be alongside me in New York on Saturday. Um, and and guess what? They're fans too. They like when we would be getting beat, they would like, oh, that was terrible. You know what I mean? And um, but to be able to sit next to my son, who's a major basketball, I mean, enthusiast. He plays all the time, year round. He's on all these different teams. It looks like he might be a pretty good player. To be able to sit next to him and you know, like high five him when something good is going on, uh, and to see the mood that he was in last night, and he's going to bed at midnight. Uh, he was just really excited for how well we played. It is special. I mean, you know, we're by our, by our nature, we're a basketball family, and my wife's from here, so she's a she's a major fan, and she's on the phone with her brother and her friends, texting back and forth during the course of the games because they're all big time Philadelphia fans and have been so their whole lives. So it is pretty neat. There's no doubt about it. And uh, in a way, like I said, to include them, it's like I owe that to them because they do endure so much. 
because we're away so often. And uh, no, it's special. It, it's a lot of fun. And then the flip side of it, is it, you know, there's a long time in the off season where we're together all the time, and uh, you get to be a full time dad all the time. But it, it's really special because the game, a lot of what I, how I grew up, and I grew up in Illinois, but where my father. Uh, took me to the Chicago Stadium, and you know it's it's almost like a, a continuum of that tradition of where you're you're passing along to your to your son and to your family. Has a player or a coach ever come to a birthday party, or the kids ever been ball boys or handed towels to players? Do they have a story that you know that they'll be telling their friends and their kids about? Well, yeah, and I guess maybe I got a, a little bit sidetracked, but that's what you asked me previously is a big deal. So because of the access, my son has had a picture with pretty much every star of today. Hmm. And he's had selfies with LeBron. I mean, <laughs> he's had Curry and the Warriors. So, yes, I, I forgot about that. And, and he's not one to go to school. And now, like, the kids will probably ask him today, did you go to the game? And, and all of his friends know. But a lot of the, some of the teachers don't even know, uh, you know, whose dad is or what his father does. And, but, no, yeah, he's had – he's had. I remember a couple of years ago in Dallas, Dirk came up to me and goes, there he is. And I kind of looked over my shoulder like, who's, who's he talking? And then I realized, oh, it's because we've stopped them for, like, three pictures over the years, you know. And to see your son <laughs> at the time when he was, like, five or six and have a seven-foot guy. Uh, next to him, I have to back up a few steps to be able to get the both of them in the picture. But yeah, no, I think he'll 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 think of that for years. And then when Jimmy Butler was with the Bulls, we I got a picture with him and my daughter. And my daughter, she's like, "Who was that again?" And then when it came to Philadelphia, when we acquired Jimmy Butler in the trade uh, with Minnesota in November, I went back and found that picture and I tweeted. Uh, I'm always trying to find find something that will connect with our fans but uh i see you've already met part of the family and that was one of my most popular uh tweets <laughs> with the likes and the mentions that you get with butler so yeah they've been back in the house uh and we keep our distance trust me I'm, i mean i'm not the kind of guy that goes in the locker room and pack guys on the back or whatever you know but uh no like they've definitely had that access just because we leave that way it's uh if you know the arena we walk out through the zamboni tunnel and that's right where the visitors locker room is and We've lingered around a little bit and uh, had an opportunity. And the guys are so nice uh, over the years. It's been great. But, yeah, my, my son probably has uh, three dozen pictures of some of the great players <laughs> in recent NBA history. <laughs> Building his own Hall of Fame. Tom, has there been a, a member of the coaching staff, whether head coach, assistant, from over the past 24 years that you've enjoyed spending the most time with on the road at dinner or otherwise? Oh, yeah, this is my wife. I was like, you get too close to these guys. I love all our coaches. You know what I mean? I just uh, maybe if I didn't do this, that might have been an area that I would have gone into. But uh, and I'm a big fan of Brett Brown's. And what's what's really fortunate for me is all of our coaches over the years have allowed me to interview them before the game. So we do an opening segment, and then we go to the coaches' interview. And I know other teams do it, but not in all sports. You know what I mean? And you get you're getting the head coach for your listeners with insight that, you know, I taped this thing maybe 90 minutes before the game. And I've always thought that's been so generous with their time, particularly like, for example, Brett Brown last night, he's doing a quick interview with me. And now yesterday he did it after their walkthrough courtside, which I love because you're right there and the balls are still being bounced and guys are shooting around. And you really get the ambience, but 
he's got to speak to me. He's speaking to Reg, Reggie Miller and Kevin Harlan. He's speaking to the media at large. He's just got so many responsibilities to so to lock in and understand that, you know, we've had this agreement or whatever. And to me, I just think that's so kind and generous with his time. And, you know, he really basically lets me ask anything. And so I've had, you know, I spent six years with Larry Brown, which was like a tutorial in terms of being around a Hall of Fame, great coach and learning from him. And I really had a great, uh, I mean, I was close with Maurice Chiefs. But with Doug Collins, oftentimes, sometimes when I turn the recorder off, and now it's my phone, I with Coach Collins, I would stop and, you know, all right, good luck, Coach, and, and begin to walk away. And then I would kind of wait, like, are we going to chat today? And then, sure enough, it would be like a 15-minute deal. Be, you know, knocking on his door like, Coach, they, they need you there. And, and he'll be, hold on. And, uh, you know, I saw him in Springfield a couple of years ago, uh, maybe when Iverson was being inducted. And he said, oh, I loved our chats. And, and so did I, because he was, he was like a basketball genius. And all these guys are so bright. And oftentimes it's not the X's and in, in the O's. It's about the relationships. And they're telling you about leadership and management. And, and I just absorb all that. So, uh, you know, not having dinner with these guys, that's for sure. They're, they're very busy and they're, they're in a cocoon with their coaches and whatnot. But we do spend a lot of time together based on what I just said. And I, I've never, ever taken that for granted to me. That's special. And I learned so much about people and about basketball. And it's been a, a great treat, that's for sure. Tom, uh, a coach that wasn't with the Sixers, but uh, someone I had a relationship in the past, and I know you were close with, when he was coaching the lacrosse Catbirds, was Flip Saunders, the late Flip Saunders. Um what are some of your uh, memories about your, your friendship with, with Flip for those that, that didn't know him? Right. Oh, he was a special guy. Flip was like a Pied Piper. And, uh, boy, he touched so many people over the years. And then just by way of background, uh, so I was with Flip in the CBA, which was the G League of its time, and that was the Continental Basketball Association. And, uh, again, I, I wanted to get into the basketball announcing. I'd been a local television sportscaster in South Carolina and Charleston and then in Florida. And I left to come to the CBA for very little money, like $75 a game. But, it, you know, it was my dream. And you can't talk about being a basketball announcer and not go announce basketball. So that's what I did. And I came back to the Midwest. And my first gig was in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And while there, we were in the same division as lacrosse and being minor league sports. And they were close. We played them eight times. <laughs> And they beat us eight times. And Flip was the coach, and they had a great team, and they won the championship that year. And at that point, their announcer left. And so I moved up to lacrosse. And it was like the perfect little minor league you know, arena, like a, the lacrosse center was on the Mississippi River. It was like 5,000 seats. It was full. They won the championship. They had great ownership, great fan base, great coach, great players. And when you're in that setting in the minor league, it's really just 10 players a coach, he is one of his great friends, Don Zierden, uh, who also was from Minneapolis, St. Paul, was his assistant. And one of our friends, the late Trey Schwab, was there. And, and that was it. So maybe 13, 14 people traveled. And, and that is when you spent the dinners. And we were having pizza late night, literally watching The Tonight Show. And, and you're close to it. You're the announcer, but you're way closer to it because they are really sharing everything about the players. And, you know, you're – you're a lot more connected because it's so small and it is the minor leagues and you traveled and the travel was, you know, so many flights that 
you had to take two, sometimes three flights to get to a given city. So Flip was, uh, he was, again, really generous with me. I got close to his family. The fact that Ryan's the coach now, I mean, you know, I interviewed Ryan and, and then sent that to their, to his mom, Debbie, Flip's wife. Uh, and it was just, I remember I was helping the Sixers do a clinic when Flip passed and he had lymphoma, which ironically, I lost a brother to the very same thing. And, you know, it's, I'm going to say supposedly the most curable cancer, but not when your brother and one of your best friends dies of it. It's now, right? So we were at, uh, at the time, PCOM, our facility, and the coaches were running it, but I was kind of like emceeing, and I found out uh, Connor Johnson, who's the coach of our minor league team, now the Blue Coats, told me, and I just, I, I almost started bawling right there, and then I realized I was doing a clinic, and that flip was so much about giving back and grassroots of basketball that, you know, I just stopped crying and, you know, and did the rest of the deal, but yeah, that was just so sad, and he was just a wonderful person and a great basketball mind. Loved the people, like and and Flip would like so over the years when he was in Detroit and Washington, we would always have these courtside conversations. And Flip was so much about the players, he would like just completely blow off your conversation and go visit with one of his former players. I'm like, oh, uh, uh, okay, then good luck. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, no, I mean, uh, I'm not the only one. He had hundreds and hundreds of friends. And, was really a special guy. He was a great player at the U and, you know, just to be around him. And, you know, we did win a championship one of the years that I was there. And, and that was just so special because I don't care what level you're at when you, when you're the last man standing, uh, that was pretty fun. So I treasure those years a lot. Maybe if I had not graduated to the NBA, it would be different. I look back, back on it different, not that friendship, but just the whole, it's kind of got a romanticism and nostalgia about it because maybe because I'm at this level, um, but that was a hoot, I'll tell you, being in the CBA and being around Flip. That, that was a lot of special memories, that's for sure. Compare that celebration, Tom, to the celebration after winning the East in 01. Oh, no, that was. That was great. Those are some highlights. And, uh, you know, we won that series against Milwaukee. And, uh, yeah, at that point, you're going to the NBA Finals. And, uh, I tell you, a lot of times you hear, we got to get to the finals. And this is more as a fan. I'm like, well, that's not, you know, that's not doing anything. You're finishing second. Nobody remembers second place. But I don't want to take away from what that did because that's certainly what, that may be my most ever favorite memory because my wife, I mentioned, Robin Rieger was a reporter on the local CBS channel here for 17 years. And, you know, the game, I think it was an afternoon game, but by the time we left there, and maybe I stuck around. I had done live shots with all of the stations in Philadelphia. Like I'm sure they wanted Iverson and Larry Brown and Aaron McKee. <laughs> got the radio guy. But in the end, uh, Robin and I were engaged to be wed. And I remember we went back outside and I did a live shot with her. And just the, the basking of knowing you were going to Los Angeles to play against that great Lakers team was shocking. Kobe and Phil Jackson. And, and the flight out there, the coaches had the, uh, the game on again. And it was we were flying during the day, which I always love because you can look out the window. And when you're at night, you know, it's dark and you can't see out. There's nothing to look at. And uh, you realize you're in the entertainment business when you're flying at 2 a.m. and everybody else in the country is asleep. But that flight was almost like a magic carpet ride to go to L.A. and then to win the first game. That was a great memory because those games were so close. We beat uh, Toronto by literally an inch when Vince Carter missed a shot in the end of Game 7. 
And that Milwaukee game was a seven-game series, and the intensity and some of the performances, you know, going back to the Toronto series, Vince Carter and Iverson trading 50-point games, that that was really special. And certainly that's what you, you yearn for and you hope for coming up uh, maybe in the weeks to come. Yeah, and I know the Bucks. Uh, Terry Stotts is on that staff. He still thinks that they should have won that series and Scott Williams suspension, but that's that's another story. Do you have a a microcosm, a, a detail that you remember about Iverson that can sum up what it was like being around him every day? Uh, well, I don't know. Like it's probably nothing different than what you know fans watch, but just to sit there. And at the time, we sat courtside. And to watch a 165-pound player who was just an incredible athlete go in there against those big guys and slither around them and get knocked to the ground and get a bucket and get back up and just do it repeatedly time after time was just an uh, incredible. Uh, you know what I mean? You were watching one of the greatest players at that position, at that size, ever to play our great our game. Um and yeah, he was phenomenal. Just to get shots of, like Larry Brown used to say, to get 20 shots, 25 shots off in an NBA game, just the, the attempts is an amazing feat in and of itself. So yeah, he was a special talent. And uh, to watch him, you know, call for the crowd by putting his hand to the ear and then get 20,000 people to respond, mm-hmm. it's not unlike what Ben Simmons did last night or what Joel did. Imagine that. That's like Mick Jagger standing at the. That's like a solo artist, not the star yeah. or Bruce Spring. That's like one guy standing on the stage and getting that reception. Uh, you know, it's it's pretty neat, and it's you know, like you're you're into the, the the heartbeat of everything that's going on when you're that close to the action, and it's it's really exciting. And that's the whole thing about being a part of live sports, even as a fan. That that's why we pay big money to go to these events because it's special. I mean, it's. It's awesome. Our, our our sport translates so well to television. Hopefully, you know, we bring a little bit of that in the radio. But to be there, like the other game when the Sixers had Bryce Harper ring the bell, I, I'm not sure. I think it was one of our last. It might have been the first game. I guess they played Saturday. So it was toward the end of the season. And they keep this a little shrouded. But the Sixers, their introduction is kicked off by a celebrity or an athlete hitting uh, this a makeup if, or a mock-up, if you will, of the Liberty Bell. And it's a big deal, and uh, they've created a nice tradition with that. And the other day, Philly slugger Bryce Harper did it, and the crowd didn't know, and the response of the crowd was just incredible. And Harper was at the receiving end of that 20,000-plus that I'm talking about. And uh, it's neat to see. I mean, it, it, the electricity flows through you, and that's how it was around Iverson where you were down there right next to the huddle. Uh, in those big moments for those big games. And, you know, that's where some of the passion and the energy comes from when, you know, that, that that's natural and that's what makes it so fun. In being up close for that, did you, did you get to hear the, the Iverson trash talk or other guys trying to trash talk Iverson? Oh, for sure. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, like, yeah. And, yeah, and it's like being next to the huddle. I I heard all those Larry Brown huddles, but you never were like, "So they're going to run a," you know what I mean? You never really brought that. You know, it's just uh, part of having your antenna up of of being there. And oh yeah, Allen going up against Gary Payton or or Kobe 
And that's the thing that you lose a little bit now that we're, we're seated off the court, and I get it. It's for tickets. It's not just in Philadelphia. It's basically almost every arena in the NBA. They've lifted the announcers off the floor, and we were on the court in prime real estate, and now they sell that real estate. Uh, and I get it. And But what you missed a lot of times was the facial reaction. Now there are a few places where we still get to sit on the court, and it's almost like you want a, a fantasy. You will get to sit courtside in an NBA game. You know, you're like you're really fired up because it's a uh, it's a treat to be able to be down there. And you miss you miss some of that when you're when you're up. Like I'll find something out on social media or on television or reading the paper or after the game. Like, oh really? I, I was at that game. Mike Scott took a drink out of a fan's beverage in Milwaukee on St. Patrick's. Oh, and then you see it. And you're like, oh, what about? Like, you know, like, you know, beverage, you know. There are a lot of things that you miss when you're not right there. Uh, but oh yeah, you, you could hear a lot of that. Hey, and unfortunately, you heard some of the things that were directed toward Allen uh, over the years on the on the sidelines. But uh, yeah, that he he definitely he was a lightning rod in a lot of ways, and uh, you could hear a lot of that trash talk during the course of a game. Tom, so contrast the the experience of uh, of calling games for Allen Iverson and, and what it's been like to watch Joel Embiid in this recent stretch. Well, the, you know, same thing. When you get a superstar player who's beloved in a city and, uh, and, like I said last night, you know, literally has a crowd in his hands when he signals in orchestral fashion for them to respond, and they do, that's, that's a pretty <laughs> symbiotic relationship for an athlete uh, with a fan base. And indeed, uh, he rises to the moment, you know. I mean, obviously, he's playing through some pain with his knee and, you know, going through uh, a lot of things physically over the years. And, you know, but when it comes to the big moment, he's he's delivered and he's got an uncanny ability. And it's neat. You're watching world-class talent, you know. You, you think of the matchups during the course of a given game, and it's players literally from all over the world on a stage, on a hardwood floor in Philadelphia. And, and that's what's great about living in a major city and, and, and being in a league and around a league like the National Basketball Association. It's it's the top basketball league in the world, and you get the best players competing at the highest level on a nightly basis. And, and that, simply stated, is to borrow from the this That's why we play, and that's why we watch, and that's why we get into it. And Embiid is a major part of that and has uh, just a, a, a wide, highly, you know, unique skill set for a man of that size. You know, there was a play last night where he smacked into Jared Allen, big-time physical play, mm-hmm. within a split second, a, a a finger roll reminiscent of the Iceman or Wilt Chamberlain, and that's power and finesse. And you, just, you know what I mean? It's like smashing a drive 350 yards and then using your lob wedge a split second later and feathering a shot up to a to a pin. <laughs> oh, yeah. happened that way in the in too many sports, but he, he, he does. He has a unique skill package. It's fun to be around him. Uh, he's a really good guy at his core, Joel Embiid. He's been through a lot. Think about it. He's only been in our country for maybe seven plus years. And to be in the position that he's in at maybe 24 years old is, uh, is pretty cool. Just a few more moments here with Sixers radio play-by-play announcer, Tom McGinnis with us on the catch and shoot podcast. So, there are times that, you know, when I've heard you call games over the years when a few guys are shoving, shoving each other, that when you listen to it, it sounds like it's the rumble in the jungle. But then when you see it, when you see it on TV, it's just guys, you know, really just, just shoving each other. 
when when you get into it like that and are, are you know, are trying to trying to paint the picture, do you know and, and you're conscious of a slight exaggeration of what's actually happening? Yeah, I guess so. And I guess most recently you could talk about when I overreacted to the Eric Bledsoe throwing the ball at Joel. Um, but speaking of earlier, we were talking about coaches. And, uh, you know, our coaches generally, they, they never really hear me. They're, they're at the same game and whatever. Uh-huh. So for whatever reason, one year, Maurice Cheeks, maybe he had moved on to another. I, I think he was still our coach, though, so I'm not sure how he got it. But uh, – Maurice said to me one time, he goes, geez, it's not even really that exciting. Talking about just the, the, the game or kind of what you're saying, a regular play. He goes, he could sound like fourth and goal every time or whatever. And, uh, <laughs> and he wasn't getting down on me. It was kind of an observation. And from somebody of that stature, uh, I, I took it kind of as a compliment. So kind of, you know what I mean? Sort of where, uh, you know, there's a little, a little hype. Um, and yeah, and certainly sometimes I, I think you overreact. But on the other hand, you know, the intensity of the game and the intensity of the interaction between these guys, and oftentimes it's been building. Um, so yeah, and again, like this is, and I played at, a, at a, obviously a much lower level, but, you know, having played, and then they got the college basketball for me, but even I was kind of a player, surprise, surprise. And sometimes that comes into maybe my style. Uh, of broadcasting, but uh, yeah, I guess what, what, many years ago there was a fight between Corliss Williamson of the then uh, he was with Sacramento at the time. There's still the Sacramento Kings and Derek Coleman, and yeah, it, you would have thought it was Thomas Hearns against you know the Arkansas you know whatever they call it Corliss Williamson, and like the Sacramento station said, can we get your call because it was different than how the Kings <laughs> called it. <laughs> Yeah, you would have thought it was round 12 of a championship bout. Uh, but, no, that's part of it. You know, and I think that's with the radio, you kind of got to bring it to life a little bit more. Um, yeah, and that when you get talked about sitting down low and the intensity of the crowd, it's almost like a, you talk about that Milwaukee series. Where I, I was barking at Sam Cassell. <laughs> he would be uh, doing his history on the entire players. And you'd certainly, you know, without question, you've always – taking the side of your players just because you're fans of your player. That's who you're around. That's who you're rooting for. And, uh, you know, you're, you're in the fight with them, so to speak. Uh, when you, you think about this, this current team and, and uh, Jimmy Butler and, and, and Bede and, and Ben Simmons, um, I'm, I'm fascinated by the three personalities. At seeing them as, as close up as you are, what do you make of their three personalities and how they sort of mesh together? Well, that's a good point, you know, and again, I just, I mentioned, uh, you know, the backgrounds, you know, Joel's from Africa and, you know, like I said, just moved here. Jimmy Butler's from Tomball, Texas, and Ben Simmons is from Australia, you know, so it's, and everybody brings their whole life to the table with their personalities. And I think just away from basketball, to me, that's how you kind of, when you learn somebody's background, you get an idea of how they tick or why they why they act that way. And you never know the the complete intricacies and, you know, the psyche of a person. But when you observe and you learn a little bit of the background, it certainly gives you a little bit of uh, potential understanding. So, I mean, Jimmy Butler, he's a, he's a different kind of guy. And it's funny, last night we were up by a point at halftime, and I referenced game two of the Sixers-Net series. 
And apparently, just again, following up after the game, but Brett Brown lit into our guys a little bit, and it ignited the team to a big run led by Embiid and what ended up being you know, a 51-point quarter. And they asked Jimmy Butler afterwards, and he loved it. That's the kind of intensity he loved. That's how he played. That's what he likes. Um, and so Joel and Ben have had a very close relationship. And let's face it, for the Sixers to go where they want to go, they have to be you know, so-called connected at the hip because they're the leaders and, and same thing with Jimmy Butler. So, you know, they and Joe and, and, and Jimmy have been connected. The other day we left off the plane uh, a different way, like toward the front, and that's where those guys are. And they were playing cards. Now, again, I'm not up there. I don't really see, but apparently they play cards all the time. And I love that because that's what, that's what teams that are close do. You know, they're, they're literally – those are that's like a tiny little thing, but playing cards and being together is that's that's bonding, you know, on that plane and on those buses where they're spending that time together. And so I can't, you know, speak distinctly to the interaction of the three of them, but that's how that's how teams get where you need to go by being together and literally having one another's back and being connected and that that shared, you know, mindset and goal of becoming a team that wants to get to some place that is hallowed ground. And you, you look around, the, this Brooklyn team has it. Boy, they've got it big time. You look at the Indiana Pacers. They got it. The Pacers, now without Victor, they don't have a singular great talent, right? I mean, I think, I think everybody would agree. What they have is a special bond and a chemistry that is that allowed them to play at this level to where they're the fifth seed in the Eastern Conference. And that's what, you know, that's what teams, that's what, that's what makes it fun to watch and root for when teams have, like the Sixers, they have this bond that uh, that takes their, their physical gifts and melds it together uh, with this, this shared mentality and this this dream of, of attaining something, and you can only do it together. And I just hope you're in the back of the plane taking Allah's lunch money because he, he certainly he certainly doesn't need it. Last, last one for you, Tom. It's the Catch and Shoot podcast. So going back over your 24 years – with the Sixers, one guy, catch and shoot situation to win you Game Seven. Who is it? Well, my all-time fave, and he rang the bell the other night. Would be Aaron McKee. So whether you know, he certainly made a lot of clutch shots during that 2001 mm-hmm. team. He was the NBA sixth man. He certainly could have been a starter. He finished games, and again, you know, you have your favorites. And I actually said this on the radio when he rang the bell. I was like hesitant to bring it out in public, but he's my all-time fave. I just huge fan of him as a man, and you know he's going on to Temple to be the head coach right now. And and we, you know, we're really close with Fran Dunphy. And uh, but I think Aaron's going to do a great job, and he certainly is more than capable of knocking down a big shot. And and he was a catch and shoot player. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, you grew up in the playgrounds of Philadelphia, you know. And he had a great way of finishing too uh, around the basket. You can't you can't be uh, you know fancy pants out there dribbling. You got to be hardcore. And he certainly was that uh, in terms of being able to catch and shoot. And Kyle Korver, you know, there we go with one of the and JJ, some of the best shooters in the history of our game. Uh, they're two of the top three point shooters in a single season ever. Would be uh, would be up there too. But uh, I'd have to go with my main man, Aaron McKean. Well, I think it's appropriate that we led by asking you what should you do to, or what do you do to take care of your voice, and then we kept you for about forty minutes. So I don't, I don't think that's exactly 
exactly how the doctor would prescribe you to take care of your voice. But he's Tom McGinnis, the radio voice of the Philadelphia 76ers, and we really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Tom. Guys, I appreciate it. Thank you as well. Good work. Awesome stuff, Tom. Thanks. All right, guys. McGinnis was great, and and every time I hear him say anything in my head, the entire interview during my head, all I could hear was, are you kidding me? And uh, it just kept going, and it's it's the greatest. And it's so appropriate that we go from McGinnis to off the rails. I think we're about to go off the rails. Adam, what do you have? Off the rails. So, Noah, I... I have been meaning to tell you the story that happened to me a couple of weeks ago. Um, so my wedding uh, was officiated by my good friend, Kevin Nagandi, who's a sports center anchor and don't mean to name drop, but we're good buddies. He's, that is uh, a, that's an all time name drop. And, and we just went from talking about Aaron McKee, a temple guy. So you just with, with McGinnis. And so now we've got back to back hall of fame, temple guys. Th- there you go. Hall of fame, temple guys. And, you know, Kevin's a, a, a local kid, uh, Phoenixville, another southeastern PA guy like like the two of us. And um, so anyhow, um, it, Kevin recently asked me um, to return the favor because for his 10 uh, year anniversary, he wanted to surprise his wife and do a, a vow renewal. And so I was asked to be the officiant for the, his vow renewal, which was an awesome honor. Right. So it's great. So a couple of weeks ago, my wife and I go to uh, Florida where they had the ceremony. The whole thing was tremendous. It was a fun weekend. But during all you the weekend, do is all you do is take vacation. It's just, just amazing. <laughs> all you do is take vacation. Oh, my God. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, life, life, life is such a vacation. Yeah, it's, it's so easy. It's so easy. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, what, uh, he has uh, three kids. Uh, Brandon and Noah are his sons, and he has a daughter, McKenna. And, uh, and, and so for some reason, we, I was hanging out, Brandon and Noah, and, and, and uh, they, they call me Uncle Adam, and, they, and, I, and I was trying to impress them. So at one point, Brandon's, I think they're like six and four, Brandon and Noah. And, and so I was trying to impress them. So I turned to Brandon at one point, and I said, hey, don't tell your dad, but I'm Batman. <laughs> and, and, you know, his eyes lit up and he told his brother this and he goes, you're not Batman. And this became Stop. like a theme. Yeah. And I just kept turning to him and quiet. And I went, I'm Batman. And so this became a thing. And Kevin heard it and was like laughing. And he's like, hey, don't, you know, I, and I'm like, don't tell your dad. And they're like, the next thing you know, they're trying to like pick up my phone and, and like, hey, Siri, you know, call, call the Joker. And I'm like, no, no, don't do that. Don't do that. So anyway. Fast forward to the next night, we're having dinner, and, uh, and they're still on me about the Batman thing, and, and I'm like, you got to be quiet. People don't know. People don't know. And they, at this point, they're like, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. So I took my, uh, my Apple phone, I mean my Apple watch, uh-huh. and, I, and uh, I took it off, and I let them sort of hold it, and so they had it, and I had my wife, um, I, I changed in my phone my <laughs> wife's phone number. I changed my wife's phone number to Batcave needs you. So I gave my wife my phone. I said, just call me really quickly. So she calls me or at dinner. So they're holding my watch and they go, all of a sudden the watch is buzzing and they go, oh, 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 uh, 
your phone's ringing. I go, oh, your watch is ringing. I go, oh, oh, who is it? And they go, and you just, the look on their face, <laughs> as they look over and it says, Bat Cave needs you. And they lost it. They go, oh my God, oh my God, he is Batman, he is Batman. They were freaking out. So the kicker to the story is I, I loved it and forgot oh, it, you know, man. and I'd sort of forgotten about it. And so uh, mean. a little, and so then a couple days ago, um, Kevin got a note from the daycare center. Oh, from boy. the daycare center. Said, I didn't realize your family was so cool, Kevin. No one informed me today that my dad's cousin is Batman. How <laughs> cool must that be? <laughs> wait, wait, so you, wait, so you never. I'm thinking that this is mean to do to the kids. Wait, you never told them that you're not Batman? Well, I tried to, but. I spent the whole first part of my time down there telling them that they can't say anything because, you know, I didn't want my, uh, my secret identity to be exposed. Oh, this is so, so great. So I think when I told them I wasn't, they took it as, well, we'll let him sort of just live his Bruce Wayne life. Oh, that's so great. I could totally see Ben Affleck playing you in a movie. <laughs> that's so great. You are Batman. Uh, and, and Kevin just texted me, Brandon turns seven next month. Noah is, is five. So uh, shout out to the entire Nagano. So, are you, so are you, is he now going to hire you as Batman in costume for their birthday? There's no, there's no hiring, Noah. I do this thing free of charge on one of my vacations. Yeah, right. You can take vacation for their birthday. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. All right, I got nothing. I got nothing. I got nothing. So uh, We should probably Bat- thank people, Noah. Yeah, well, I'm going to thank uh, Batman. Yes. Thank you. Yes. And make sure that we thank Jeff Torini and Scott and Ooh, Turk good and Bruce Bernstein. Yep, Bruce Bernstein, uh, the entire Pure Hoops Media family. Um, who's, okay, so Adam, who, who's in that family? Um, and don't forget anybody. <laughs> there's Scott. There's George. There's Noah. There's a whole. There's a whole team. Um, there's uh, Ben. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know. Okay. Yeah. Tom glad, McGinnis glad. might join us. I'm you glad. Know. I'm glad you got everybody in that back cave. And we we want to make sure everybody Isabel, sub- Monica subscri- subscribes, rates, and reviews the Eric. podcast, and also to download and subscribe, rate, review all the other podcasts on the Pure Hoops Media Stream. That is the Mike Wise Show. It's also Buckets, Boards, and Blocks with Monica McKnight and also Pure Hoops with BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman. But you know what? I mean, Newman might get another documentary out of this boogie injury. He, he might. Phenomenal job on that doc, by the way, Eric Newman. So go watch it on Showtime, The Resurgence. All right, Batman. Appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate you. The Catch and Shoot podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.